Hi, this is Dana Stevens, Slate's movie critic, and this is a Slate spoiler special on Transformers, the movie. Now, remember, if you're planning on seeing Transformers, that the spoiler special is the feature wherein we give away all the secrets of the movie. So if you're really on the edge of your seat to know what happens in the Transformers movie, you're an old-time Transformers fan, you might want to see the movie before you listen to this podcast. So I'm here with John Swansburg, an editor at Slate. Hi, John. Hello. Good to be here. And the two of us saw Transformers together last night, had an absolute blast. For some reason, we can't quite figure out, given that the movie's pretty terrible. Mm-hmm. And John happens to be in the midst of researching a whole piece on the mythology of the Transformers, the uh, original Hasbro toys, and how they became a television show, and then a movie in what year was the first movie? The movie was shot in 85, 85. and came out, I think it came out in 86. Right. So a movie of the mid-80s, which has now become a movie 20 years later. It's It's a pretty bizarre trajectory for a dinky little kid's toy. Absolutely. And interestingly, I just was reminded when I was uh, looking at this stuff this morning that uh, the original movie, which came out in 86, was set in 2005, so sort of set in the present day. Uh, Which is now the past. Which is now the past, exactly. Before time began, there was the cube. So that was the the starting point for our discussion, which is both of our first note from the movie. We sat there and we noticed that both of us kept scribbling down the same bizarre lines at the same time we're comparing notes later. And the very first line of the movie is this sort of biblical declaration against, I think, a shot of deep space. In the voice of it, this deep voice of a Transformer, before time began, there was the cube. Do you want to take it from there? What happened after there was the cube? Uh, I wish I knew. In the world of the Transformers. Yeah, I I, I wish I could say. I I tried to sort it all out this morning, trying to remember what the plot was exactly, and uh, I I fear we will not give away all the secrets of this movie because they're just sort of too diffuse. And also, my all my training uh, in the background on the Transformers is sort of useless because this movie doesn't really make much use of the mythology. The vast body of knowledge. I know. It's like I thought this was finally going to be worth something, and alas, uh, they don't really seem to do much with it. But I'll try try my best to, to tell you about what happened uh, in this movie last night. If you don't mind, I may jump into your plot summary at some points, just because the plot summary of this movie is, is just too golden. I may have a, a couple of embroideries of my own. Absolutely. Please do. So, in the beginning, there was the cube. And the cube comes to Earth at some point, but the cube was really essential to life on Cybertron, which is the sort of home planet of the Transformers, which are essentially robots that can transform into other things. Cybertron is the name for the 80s sci-fi planet. It's just so perfect. I can't believe how great the names in this movie are, but go on. Absolutely. All the names are really choice, and uh, all of them date back to the original series. I don't think that there are any new names introduced, uh, which is one of the reasons that they're probably so good. So the cube is really important, but I'm not really sure why it's important. I don't know if, if you have any thoughts on that data. The but cube, to me, was, was sort of like the monolith in 2001, the space odyssey. Exactly. I mean, it's a big geometric shape. It floats through space. It's powerful in some mysterious way that we don't understand. Right. And then it seems to sort of give rise to new life at the end, as does the monolith. Right. It's one of these things that they sort of... But it looks sort of... more like a Rubik's Cube, actually. Sort yeah. Sort of a lead Rubik's Cube with strange runic lettering on exactly. it. Exactly. Or it looks actually a little bit like the Borg in Star Trek The Next Generation for folks who, who know what that uh, looks like. Uh, and those you who are listening to this probably do. <laughs> um, anyway, so suffice it to say that the, the cube is really important, and it's one of these things that, of course, in the right hands is a force for good, and in the wrong hands is a you know terrible force for evil. It comes to Earth for some reason and, and crashes maybe in the Arctic, and the leader of the bad guys, Megatron, and the bad guys in the Transformers mythology are the Decepticons. The leader of the Decepticons, Megatron, somehow catches wind to the fact that the Allspice or the uh, <laughs> the Allspark, as the cube is known. That's another confusing thing. One minute they're calling it the cube, and then it's it's the Allspark. Right. It's so the Allspark, which which I think the it, Allspark is. It sounds like one of those. Um, it sounds like some Emerson essay, right? Yeah. <laughs> Doesn't he have something like the Allspark? Yeah, that that sounds exactly right. I think what they're trying to get at is that it's like this, as you said, it's this sort of thing that gives rise to, or gave rise to all life 
either on Cybertron or maybe the entire universe. Not exactly clear how the fates of Cybertron and Earth are intertwined. Anyway, so Megatron comes to Earth to track this thing down, but maybe has a crash landing uh, or sort of uh, inadvertently ends up uh, lodged in the Arctic Circle somewhere and frozen. And that's that, I guess, for a while until an explorer who we only know as Captain Witwicky. Another great name. Another great name, and that also is from the original series, uh, although Captain Witwicky is not a character, but one of the other humans in the original series is named Sparkplug Witwicky, an even better name. <laughs> Captain Witwicky is trying to get to I the... I have my next pet's name. Sure. <laughs> I see a schnauzer. Sparkplug Absolutely. Witwicky. Or a uh, chihuahua, even better, because there's a chihuahua that plays a prominent role in this, in this Taco movie. Taco Bell dog. Exactly. Or not so prominent role, but uh, it's there, and he has a broken leg inexplicably. Anyway, so... Megatron crash lands, maybe 100 years later, Captain Witwicky, who's trying to get to the North Pole, accidentally comes across Megatron. And in in one of the really more ridiculous moments in the movie, one that I think we both shared a laugh about while we were watching it, Witwicky sort of finds this frozen robot embedded in ice, and there's a sort of weird moment where he touches Megatron's hand, and we're told through some, like, ridiculous exposition that he somehow activates Megatron's GPS device or something like that, and there's sort of this flash of energy, and the exact coordinates of the AllSpark are imprinted on the spectacles of Captain Witwicky. It's fantastic. And... So then we sort of fast forward to the present day and... Uh, so the spectacles actually become the MacGuffin of the movie. So exactly. Everybody's after this sort of old cracked pair of John Lennon glasses from the 1930s. Precisely. And uh, we know exactly when they're from because they're from either 1929 uh, through 1933, which is the, the, the years of the Hoover presidency. Um, because, oh, yeah. Hoover becomes a big... Yeah. Movie. So one of my favorite things about this movie, in fact, it may be my favorite thing about this movie, is that it posits that the most important presidency in American history... And really, maybe in the history of the universe was the Hoover presidency. And Hoover, of course, is not really remembered fondly. He sort of presided over the country as it as it uh, fell into the depression. But after you watch this movie, you realize that he really couldn't concentrate on the depression because <laughs> he was moving a frozen Megatron to Nevada to uh, store so that he could reverse engineer all the technology that we now have. And <laughs> wait, wait, let's say. Sorry, yeah, okay. Well, I'm getting ahead of myself. So. <laughs> we fast forward to the uh, to the present day, and Sam Witwicky, who's the grandson of Captain Witwicky, played by Shia LaBeouf in the movie. Right. I'm glad you said that because I don't know how to pronounce his name. Um, I, I think that's how you pronounce it. No? I think that that sounds that sounds right. So he is sort of this like, kind of classic hapless high schooler, and he I think is you know say maybe he's a sophomore, and he's starting to experience a desire for young ladies, and he's really hoping to buy a car so that he could have better luck with the women because he's not a sort of buff football player. And his dad has promised him that if he gets a couple of A's, he will front him a car, but he still needs some money to uh, either to contribute to the car or so that he can for gas money or whatever. So he's selling all of his grandfather's stuff on eBay, including the spectacles that have the coordinates for the AllSpark. And in doing so... In doing so, apparently the Autobots, who are the good guys in the Transformers universe, have a really good wireless connection. And they are surfing eBay, and they find out that the spectacles that everybody's looking for are in the possession of one Sam Witwicky. This is something I'm very fond of in the movie, the way that internet technology and eBay, the existence of eBay, is woven really seamlessly into this War of the Worlds narrative. Right. There are a couple of times where there's some sort of funny lines about where one of the Autobots will be telling this sort of ridiculous expository string of, of background myth, and then there'll be a line, you know, how did you find all this out? And they'll say, eBay. 
or you know, you know, it, it all comes down to all that myth aside. We wouldn't be here right now if we hadn't seen your item for for up, up for auction on eBay, uh, which is of course utterly absurd, but kind of a funny commentary in a way. So <laughs> just for fear that, that recounting the story of the war is going to take even longer than before time begins, there was the cube itself. Right. So how does it come to be that there are these two warring races of robots on Earth that transform into various types of vehicles? fighting for these glasses? Uh, That's a good question. So my understanding is that the Autobots figure out through eBay that the spectacles are being held by this kid, but the Decepticons also have figured it out, the Decepticons being the bad guys. And so they come to Earth as well, and then it becomes, the movie sort of becomes a race to to see who can get the spectacles first. Although I think you're right to call the spectacles a MacGuffin because at a certain point, everybody knows where the cube is, and they haven't really figured that out because of the spectacles. They figure it out because... Well, the spectacles are the map to the cube. Right. right? And then eventually they, both warring races find their way to the cube. Right. Which which now I think we can get to perhaps the, the big spoiler in the movie. Right, which is we learn that the U.S. government has been in possession of the cube and Megatron since the Hoover administration. Captain Witwicky finds it. And, uh, and suddenly we're in a paranoid kind of political thriller universe. Yeah, suddenly what has the government been hiding from us? Right, suddenly there's a sort of X-Files-esque body of the government called Section 7, which is headed up... Sector 7. Sector 7, apologies. Uh, Sector 7, which even the Secretary of Defense, played by John Voight, doesn't know about. I love the exchange of lines with John Turturro, who represents a... He's an agent from Sector 7, who shows up with a badge at the door, I believe, of Shia LaBeouf's parents, right. saying... Uh, I represent Sector Seven. The father says, "Never heard of it," and John Turturro says, "Never will." Right. That's one of the best. <laughs> that's one of the best lines of dialogue, if not the best line of dialogue in in the picture. I would say. So Sector Seven essentially has been tasked with keeping the cube under wraps, and this is another great. So it turns out that the Hoover Dam, which we all thought was created to you know create energy for the West of America, was actually created to hide the energy of the cube, which has been lodged underneath the Hoover Dam. And the Hoover Dam is just sort of a ruse and a, a place to, to store. Megatron and this cube. And they do suggest at one point, as I think I mentioned before, that they've we basically have reverse engineered all of our high-tech technology from the cube. Like, so it ends up being a Luddite movie as well, right? Every, right? All the modern technology of this century is sort of, has been reverse engineered from this giant frozen, wasn't it the, more the frozen robot? Maybe it was a frozen, a frozen robot, robot under the Hoover Dam, right? Yeah. And there's also the huge Rubik's Cube. Right. And both of these two things essentially account for the existence of eBay and the internet and cell phones and right. all the technology we depend on, which would seem to mean to me that those things are vaguely evil in some way, but the movie doesn't really pursue that. No, it doesn't. It's, that's a really good point. So suffice it to say that the good guys and the bad guys find out that the Hoover Dam is where it's at, and uh, they defrost Megatron, so the leader of the bad guys is sort of in the picture again. Uh, and in case you're confused, this is one of my favorite moments in the, in the movie. When, when Megatron defrosts and sort of comes back alive, his first uh, line of, of dialogue is, I am Megatron, <laughs> which it seems like I don't, if I were in a coma and I came out of it, I, I don't think my first line would be, I am John. But uh, this is what he says. So now we all know it's who he Saturday is. It's the Saturday morning cartoon logic, though. Do you remember on Land of the Lost, the creatures, the slee stacks that wandered around all the time saying slee stacks, slee stacks? <laughs> I don't, but it does seem like uh, pretty much the same uh, theory. Anyway, then the good guys and the bad guys are fighting over the cube. Not even sure this is worth mentioning, but at one point, one of the robots takes this cube, which is about the size of like the Pentagon, let's say, and touches it and transforms it into the size of like a 25-inch tube television. Uh, not clear why they hadn't figured out how to do that. Even smaller than that, I thought of it as sort of the size of like a cinder block or something Yeah, like maybe, that. yeah. I mean, it's, it's small enough. And after that, suddenly it becomes portable. This thing, the right. whole movie has been about 
tracking down and getting to on maps and getting to the Hoover Dam for this huge revolving cube suddenly becomes basically like a, a portable briefcase that you can just run around with, which Shia LaBeouf proceeds to do right. for the rest of the movie. Right. So Sam starts running around. They go to some sort of nondescript town. It sort of looked like Phoenix to me or maybe uh, Reno. Uh, and... I don't really know why they go there, um, but it's basically a way to have a lot of things blow up in a sort of city context. No, they're in L.A. They're, Is they're it totally, L.A.? Yeah, oh, yeah, they're on the street. I was trying to remember the name of the street in downtown L.A., but it's actually sort of sweet. They're on the old uh, Hollywood Row that used oh. to have the great old Hollywood Palace theaters and so forth, which is now a little bit sort of skid row. Hmm. Any L.A.-based listeners out there, I'm sure, are screaming the name of the street right now, and right. I can't remember it. See, that, that, I totally missed that, but maybe I was um, trying desperately to pay attention to the action, which, as we discussed last night, was almost impossible to follow and it's strange because the movie sort of sets up the last act as you know what you've been waiting for where like the good guys and bad guys robots are going to fight each other uh, to the death to see who controls this cube but the fighting is choreographed so poorly and it's so um, kinetic in this way that you can't really tell the good guys from the bad guys you can't really understand what they're doing and why they're wrestling with one another and who's oh, winning. let's talk as long as we're spoiling. I want to ask you in a minute and why we both enjoyed the movie if we both agree that it's, it's sort of a piece of crap right. in this way. <laughs> um, and not even particularly always an entertaining piece of crap, yet somehow the aggregate left you walking out feeling good. But can you just talk about the very, very last moment, which I think is really desperately in need of a spoiler because neither of us, including you, the Transformers scholar, had any idea what the hell was going on? Yeah, it's really, it's really um, botched. But essentially, at the end, the sort of lesser good guys and lesser bad guys are sort of limping and wounded, and Megatron and Optimus Prime, who's the leader of the good guys. Optimus Prime. Just note, if you will, the name of the main good guy. Right. Why don't they just call him... Goody McGoodowitch. Yeah, it, it's delightfully redundant and wonderfully Latinate uh, as well. Anyway, so Optimus Prime and Megatron are sort of like the last guys standing, and they are about to have a showdown, which is very exciting. And, and folks who've seen the original animated movie will recall that this also, there's a similar showdown. In pretty much every episode of the television show, there was a showdown between Optimus and, and Megatron. And Optimus sort of utters in his, uh, in his uh, weighty voice, one shall stand, one shall fall, right before they do battle, which is actually a line taken right from the movie. It's one of the only sort of uh, allusions to the original animated movie. And then it's sort of, they kind of roll over on top of each other a little bit, and uh, it's not really clear what happens. And then Sam Witwicky shows up with the cube, and Optimus is trying to get him to put the cube in his chest, <laughs> which is like has a weird kind of like gross sexual sound to it when you're... Yeah, you like, were saying something about the line, put yeah, the cube Put the in cube my in my chest. chest. Put the cube in my chest. And it, in the context of this movie, it, it, it it's kind of an awful, creepy feel to it. But um, <laughs> anyway, uh, Optimus is like trying to sort of sacrifice himself for the universe. Wait, well, why does he... But can you explain why he wants the cube put in his chest? <laughs> I think Optimus believes that if the cube is put in his chest, it'll destroy the cube and himself, and that's so better. So be sort of a Christ-like sacrifice that will save the Cybertron universe. Exactly. It'll save Earth. It'll save Cybertron. The cube will not fall into evil hands. But Sam instead puts the cube in Megatron's chest, and Megatron uh, is sort of melted and destroyed, although you have the sense that he's probably going to come back in a sequel, as we maybe will talk later. They're like Very nine confusing times. confusing moment for the viewer, because yeah. first of all, as you were saying before, these guys are almost indistinguishable, unless you're some kind of Transformers head. They're just all a bunch of big clanking pieces of machinery bonking into each other. And I thought it was the good guy who had been sacrificed. I thought that was the logic that it was sort of like Terminator 1 where the good guy has to go down. Right. And Which would have made for a better movie, frankly. Um, it, it actually made no no sense at all because there was no sacrifice. If the bad guy sacrifices himself unwillingly, then where's the moral victory in that? It also makes you wonder about Optimus because 
why exactly was he so bent on having the cube put in his chest when he could have easily been <laughs> instructing Sam, put it in his chest, put it in his chest? Because that, you know, it was obviously he had the choice there and, and he made one that killed the bad guy and saved the world. Something and, about the moral dilemma is just weakened if it's like, ah, shove yeah. in anybody's chest. <laughs> yeah. Fair enough. Um, so, but I, I totally agree. Even as someone who could tell the robots apart, I didn't really understand what exactly happened there and what the AllSpark does to Megatron is kind of confusing because else, uh, elsewhere in the movie the AllSpark seems to like when it touches something like it bumps up against a 7-Up machine at one point and turns it into a robot so the notion that it would bump into another robot and destroy the robot is a little bit confusing although in this maybe in the- there's there's fanboys out there that are sort of doing exegesis of all this online that, that we can read about before the inevitable sequel but let me get to just the question that puzzles me most about the movie which is why is it so enjoyable I mean to me it was actually these moments of utter incoherence that were the most enjoyable and walking out talking about them I think seeing the movie alone with someone who didn't know much about the Transformers would have been far less fun so thanks for going but what do you think in the aggregate made this movie a fun experience to see I mean it certainly wasn't the direction I think we both agreed that it was very hard to follow the action sequences they weren't precisely choreographed they weren't sort of elegantly done I mean they were powerful in the sense that they were very loud and there was a lot of kablamo action right but having just seen and reviewed live for your die hard a few days before I mean it was incomparably better action filmmaking on the part of Len Wiseman for Die Hard than Michael Bay for this movie. And yet, I don't know, maybe it was it was actually the performances. I mean, Shia LaBeouf is pretty endearing in his role and manages to take it very seriously in spite of all kinds of absurdly silly dialogue he's forced to utter. But there was something about this movie that sort of carried me along. Yeah, he, he's pretty charming in the end. I mean, he's forced to utter some pretty regrettable lines, and uh, there's some pretty sad attempts at actual humor. But there's a sort of warm humor to the movie that when it's not trying to be funny that I, that I found kind of endearing. Uh, there's some slapstick that kind of works, although I think fanboys will be disappointed when they see Optimus Prime sort of step on a, a garden gnome and say, my bad. I mean, that's just not the kind of thing an Optimus would ever do. <laughs> he's, mo- he's the most regal of uh, Transformers. And he's voiced by Peter Cullen, who's the same guy who voiced him in the in the original cartoons and he does have this kind of amazing commanding uh, A great baritone. moment for that voiceover actor. Let me just point out that 20 years ago he did a little Hasbro Kids show and exactly. now he sort of gets to have this revival all these years later. I'm sure in the voiceover world he's getting some kudos from Oh, now. absolutely. Uh, in the meantime, I noticed he'd been... Uh, relegated to doing Eeyore in the second run uh, Winnie the Pooh cartoons. So I think this is a, a big, straight to video. Kind yeah, of. this was a, a big phone call to get from Michael Bay for him, I think. But yeah, it is it is a good question because I as disappointed as I was in a lot of ways about this movie, having loved this cartoon as a kid and, and as bad as a lot of the action is, I, I left sort of, you know, bemused and, and kind of thinking it was fun. And in a way, the, the convoluted plot that we've been wrestling with and not doing a very good job of describing is sort of fun. I mean, it keeps your mind uh, racing a little bit, like what exactly is going on here? And it is so ridiculous that it, you can kind of laugh at it. I mean, I remember it seemed to me that you and I laughed the loudest when the plot got the, at its most ridiculous, when, yeah. the, when the, the coordinates of the cube were miraculous imprinted on a pair of spectacles or when a character would say something like, I know the only hacker in the world who can break this code. You know, it was sort of campy, not intentionally, I don't think, but uh, in a way that was kind of hard to It was sort to of hard enjoy. to tell. It sort of seemed like Michael Bay was trying to have a lighter side after getting so much crap for always making these incredibly self-important and leaden action movies. Right. And his attempts to deliberately be lighthearted were also leaden. But, exactly, yeah. But then there were some moments of lightness. I mean, I think both you and I just felt a great deal of affection toward it, extremely expository 
very late scene in the movie where it's all the Transformers, the good guys, are right. sort of hanging out at Hoover Dam. They're basically sort of leaning against some sort of massive pediment of the dam, just right. sort of chatting about the exposition. I mean, just in case we weren't up on what cubes need to be, you know, downsized <laughs> and shoved into what chests to save what planets, they just sort of went over the whole thing. Right. It was a great little uh, like a bowl little, session. Like a little cram session. Yeah. And, and what was really enjoyable about that scene for me was that despite the fact that there was all this exposition, it was like a five-minute scene. I still really had no idea what was going on. I mean, I, 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 I kind of had that broad outlines of, of why, you know, who needed what and, and what needed to happen for that to work out. But you still didn't really understand what the cube was or, or what it was going to do. And it was really quite ridiculous. One other thing I wanted to mention, which is, I think, an interesting point about the movie, and I'm curious what you think of it, having not seen uh, the, the stuff as a kid, is that this is actually a very human movie. I mean, it's, it's really about human characters. The robots, as we discussed last night, they're not really developed as characters. I mean, Optimus is posited as this ultimate good guy, Megatron as the ultimate bad guy, but the lesser robots don't really take on personalities, either as voices or just like there's not really any backstory. Oh yeah, no backstory whatsoever. Yeah, whereas the cartoon, one of the things you notice when you watch the old cartoons is that each of the even um, smaller characters like have a personality. One of the guys is sort of a wiseacre, you know, one of the guys is like a real nerd scientist. Starscream, who's the sort of number two bad guy, is always conniving ways that he's going to take over power from Megatron, the leader of the bad guys. And like they all have these sort of three-dimensional, uh, or at least as three-dimensional as you can get in a children's cartoon personas. And in this movie, it's really about the humans and developing their characters to the extent that Michael Bay develops them. And that's an interesting switch. It had to have been deliberate because there wasn't even any vague attempt to sketch in a backstory or much of even one characteristic for each right. each Transformer. I don't know. I mean, to me, the Transformers were almost like toys. It really, I think this movie might be a big hit among young boys. I'm not sure exactly of the age group because I just don't know boys of that age well enough now right. or when they get too sophisticated for this movie. But it seems like a movie about having a really great toy. I mean, Shia LaBeouf's character has this car. We forgot to mention this very central point that he <laughs> oh, right. owns a Camaro that turns into a nice guy, good robot. Bumblebee, for those of you who know. And at the end, he chooses, you know, rather than send this this car being back to its home planet, he chooses to keep the car and drive around in it with his girlfriend and make out on the hood. Right. And it's just this kind of cool idea about having a really neat toy. I mean, if you think about it, maybe the demographic is people who grew up playing with Transformers and now they want to imagine playing with Transformers again. So it's kind of a regressive delight. Sure. I think it was trying to split the difference between people like me who grew up playing with the toy and hopefully kids who you know are younger and will play with the new line of toys that undoubtedly is hitting stores. And maybe right the now. ideal audience would be a father-son pair. The father used to play with a toy and he's about to go out and buy the new edition of the toy for his son after right. seeing the movie. And hopefully he can make it through the uh, several masturbation jokes uh, in, in the middle. <laughs> All right. Well, John, thank you for being the ideal companion with whom to see the uh, the Transformers movie. And uh, maybe we'll meet up at the sequel in 2008. I can't wait. For Slate.com, I'm Dana Stevens. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family cannolis and spins mean everything now you want to get mixed up in the family business introducing the godfather at chumpacasino.com test your luck in the shadowy world of the godfather slot someday i will call upon you to do a service for me play the godfather now at chumpacasino.com welcome to the family no purchase necessary vgw group void where prohibited by law 18 plus terms and conditions apply